This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. You're listening to Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Today with me, I have David Donaldson, the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center, and we're going to talk a little bit about a new uh, product that has been approved by the FDA that will provide a sustained release of buprenorphine, which is one of the medications that we use for chronic opioid addiction. This is a new player to the market, and there are some good news and some bad news um, regarding this particular product, and we'll be talking about that today. So thank you for joining me. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. It's a very interesting topic that we're about to look into. Um, the opioid addiction um, and the opioid uh, epidemic has been in the news quite a bit. We're seeing all sorts of specials on TV. We're seeing newspaper articles, magazine articles. Lots of the blogs are lighting up. It continues to be an ongoing problem. But I thought maybe we should put all of this into perspective and realize that the problems with opioids are not new to the United States. It's not just been within the last 10, 15 years that we're seeing this explosion of uh, addicts and deaths um, related to use of opioids, that this goes way back in the history of the United States. Oh, absolutely. It's, um, it's, I believe something that we're seeing a lot more of because it is hitting a different generation. It is take, it is causing people to, to overdose and, and the consequences are much greater. But another reason is that, that treatment providers actually have options for working with these people now because there was a long time in the field of addiction treatment that if you showed up and your primary addiction was just opiates, you would be told you're go home, you're going to get really sick, it's going to feel like a really bad flu, and then when you're through that, go to meetings and get some support and you'll be fine. Insurance companies weren't going to pay for the treatment of opiate addiction because it wasn't a life and death situation, and also there wasn't any medical options to help somebody for a long time. In fact, um, it was actually illegal for many years for a physician to knowingly prescribe medications uh, prescription medications for someone who was a known drug addict. Now, they didn't ever have those prohibitions around prescribing for someone who was an alcoholic, which speaks very much to the separation and, and this duality that we see within our political system, our government, our recovery programs, even people in the recovery field themselves with the idea that alcoholism is a different disease and a different disorder than is drug addiction. We, of course, know and spend a lot of time helping our folks at the Atlanta Healing Center realize the problem isn't the sub substance, the problem's your brain. And it's the same problem that we're talking <laughs> right. about, the disease of addiction, chemical dependency, chemical abuse. We're talking about the disease of addiction. Um, but it just highlights how, how morality and, and people's moral, um, uh, moral background infiltrates even um, educated minds, educated people who are talking mm -hmm. about a disease and they know diseases, they know what causes something to be classified as a disease, will still make these distinctions between somebody who has the disease of alcoholism 
or the disease of opiate dependency. Right. It's um, it it creates all kinds of confusion both among the lay public and unfortunately between uh, treatment professionals and um, prescribers, doctors, nurse practitioners, dentists, other folks who provide medications that we would consider opioids or pain-relieving medication. Lots of distinctions, lots of differences, and yet we realize it is the same disease. And it goes back a long, long way. We, um, again, have thought about it as something much more recent, but the reality is is that uh, opium, the um, very potent pain reliever, mood-altering substance found from the poppy seed or the poppy, the bulb of the poppy flower, has been around for 5,000 years. Even back in the Neolithic age, there is reference made to the use of this thick kind of creamy colored substance that comes Uh, that seeps out of the poppy plant once the leaves have gone, or the flower um, flowers have fallen off, and you have this little um, pod left. If you cut that pod and leave it for a few hours, this thick substance comes out that's known as opium. And people have used it for both medicinal purposes and recreational purposes for thousands of years. Well, and the other piece of it is that that people have been wanting to find solutions for pain that allows them to keep function and stay active and busy in their life for as long. So there have been researchers and scientists looking at things that are going to block the experience of pain or stop the experience of pain. So doctors, when they when they first really began looking at at opium, mm-hmm. they were seeing that as a miraculous situation. It was used to help. Um, obviously, they like to use it to help women when they're having their emotional periods <laughs> and helping um, men who are dealing with the, the pain from having worked so hard out in the field and on the on the um, in the lines um, and and they've discovered quickly that opium they would use it in a liquid uh, laudanum or in in uh, um, um, like a tea and and it would take pain away and people would be able to get back to work and function um, but they also quickly mm-hmm. discovered that it would cause um, Dependency, right? So, as this um, this substance, and it is naturally occurring, we we make another big distinction between the natural occurring uh, herbs of the earth and then pharmaceuticals manufactured in a um, pharmaceutical uh, company. Um, so, this is a natural herb. It certainly would not be my primary way of trying to relieve severe pain that I might have after an operation or a serious accident. But it was first started in countries that grew poppies. And we know that in the Middle East, and we know that in China and other um, countries around the world, they discovered this uh, very quickly, and then it spread gradually around the world and eventually came to the United States. Um, We know that in the 1800s, 
it finally made it to the um, west coast of the United States, and the use of it really skyrocketed. So physicians and pharmacists discovered this, and they made tinctures. So if a tincture generally means they've added some alcohol to the substance to extract, if you will, the active ingredient. So they would make tinctures, and they called it laudanum, as you um, referenced it, and they used it to treat everything from tuberculosis to the female issues, as you mentioned, and it became widely um, popular. Between, um, uh, well, in the late 19th century, there were probably uh, 150,000 to 200,000 people in the United States that were actively addicted to the medication that was being given to them by the pharmacists and by their physicians. Well, and it was also not a controlled substance at that point. So it was still being used, um, especially on the West Coast and in, in, in Chinatown, um, um, as um, as a relaxing tea. Mm-hmm. That people had their opium dents and mm-hmm. their opium parlors that people would go to. And there wasn't necessarily a, um, a stigmatism as to the people that were going to there. It was a place that people went to mm-hmm. relax and have a, have Chinese tea. And so, ironically, even though it was the physicians and the pharmacists back in the 1800s that were prescribing most of this and providing most of it, the blame for this opium um, addiction was really blamed on these Chinese immigrants that were bringing um, the opium in from China and that they were using it as part of their daily ritual. They also added a new delivery system, if you will, and they began to smoke it. And so there was the creation of the opium den. Now this was, again, blamed for most of the problem, but really... And it did have an effect on people, obviously, but that was not the majority of the problem when we look at where they were actually getting it. I'm thinking about how that industry really kind of moved right into the entertainment industry and, and how many of the movies of the of the um, early film industry of the 20s and 30s and 40s were about the um, the opium trade and the opium dims. Um, a musical, one of the biggest musicals of that time period, A Little Drum Song, a big part of that theme was um, infiltrating the opium opium trade. So very interesting. In um, 1898, C.F. Holder wrote in Scientific America that in San Francisco, he estimated that 30% of the Chinese um, were addicted to smoking opium and that 10% of the entire population of Chinatown were habitual, I love this, quote, opium drunkards, end quote, and that the drug at that time was smoked as freely as tobacco. And um, they um, stated that white people were prohibited from going into the opium dens, but uh, we know <laughs> from from the popularization, as, as you have mentioned, in musicals and movies and books of that time and historical records that um, somehow they found their way into the 
opium dens, and they also, uh, the Caucasian population did Was partake. allowed to have some as well. It's interesting because it moves from there where the, the science scientists are trying to find a way to keep getting the pain um, relieving aspects of opiates right. without the addictive qualities. So they keep trying to pull out different elements from the opium um, and uh, and that brings us to morphine and then eventually it brings us to heroin where their efforts is to make it safer and safer. What they keep finding is it gets um, um, increasingly more addictive. More addictive and um, in many ways because it's a purified po- um, form it is also more potent. So it um, it appeals more to the individual, and it has more pain-relieving properties. And we owe um, a debt of, I don't know, gratitude, but we owe a debt <laughs> to German scientists who were very um, devoted to trying to find a way to not have the addiction of the opium poppy or the opium but to, um, first of all, they made morphine, which is one of the components of the opium uh, poppy. And they, um, the German pharmaceutical company Merck in 1827 began um, to be uh, um, actually manufacture um, the um, drug morphine. And it was used to treat um extreme pain, was very effective, was touted as being not addictive, we learn. Unfortunately, like we learned so many lessons, indeed it was highly addictive. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the trail of the opium poppy in the United States. Stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. 
These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. I have with me David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. You're listening to Detailing Addiction. Today we're talking about um, the history of opium, the history of opioid drugs in the United States. And we're going to highlight uh, during the show the, uh, the newest product on the block, which hopefully will prove to be useful and helpful, and this is the implantable buprenorphine. Right before the break, we had gotten to the place where uh, we were in the late um, 1800s, and morphine had become commonly used. Unfortunately, it was also found to be highly addictive. So the German hadn't given up. A German chemist, um, Mr. Wright, was a was looking again for a safer pain medication that didn't cause addiction, and he was actually um, manufactured for the first time something called diacetylmorphine. Now, some of you may recognize that name. Diacetylmorphine is most commonly known as heroin. Um, he put the, uh, he tried it out on his dog. And nearly killed the dog. And nearly killed the dog. And so he put that uh, chemical uh, compound away, and um, wasn't, it wasn't really brought forward until almost um, 25 years later when Felix Hoffman, a chemist at Bayer, Bayer Pharmaceuticals, the Bayer Aspirin Company in Germany, um, was looking for a way of producing codeine. Now, those of you who know your pharmacology, and I'm sure some of our listeners do, um, the two main natural ingredients from opium, uh, one is morphine, the more potent um, and more powerful pain reliever. The second is codeine, and that is felt to be a lesser pain reliever, but very helpful for treating coughs. So um, Mr. Hoffman was actually trying to separate the the codeine from the morphine and make um, a less potent form. Instead, he came up with the diacetylmorphine. And in his um, uh, discovery, heroin was again touted as a non-addictive substitute for morphine and for use as a cough suppressant. So it was sold over-the-counter two children to help ease teething pain and to help with a chronic cough. So kids were given um, this on a regular basis and people were using it as a safe alternative to treat pain, safe alternative to the addictive morphine. As an interesting little side note, um, um, 
in one of our groups recently, we were talking about first exposure to um, which various types of chemicals. And so part of what we were talking about was first exposure to um, opiates. All the way around the room, the first exposure for opiates had been in the dentist chair, and it had been um, hydrocodone. So people have the impression that, and in the group in particular, that hydrocodone is a harmless drug. It's something that you get when you get your teeth pulled or you have dental work done. And and you give it to kids. You give it to kids. And that's what's the big deal? Because it's just, it's being viewed like aspirin. Um, but when you're talking to them, a certain percentage of them, when they're talking about it, they'll get a little bit of a smile on the side of their face and they'll they'll begin talking immediately about I had energy. I wanted to get up and do all of these things. I didn't understand why they thought that getting your teeth pulled was such a big deal because they felt really energetic on this simple little hydrocodone. And that early exposure is often the start of a long and painful journey uh, through addiction. And uh, something to really think about. Do you really need this level of pain relief? And we're going to talk again a little bit later about the potential that exposing people to opiates even for a brief period of time may actually make pain worse. So is it really necessary and certainly uh, being very cautious and judicious if you are giving children these medications to make sure that they're used as directed and for the briefest amount of time, the briefest exposure, and then safely disposed of. I wouldn't say stored with these medications. Um, I would say these need to be disposed of um, very quickly, not kept around because kids learn to love them and they find them and they continue to use them recreationally. And they begin to learn how to search them out. They, in fact, they will tell other kids, go check your, your parents' medicine cabinet because this will be so much fun. And, the, again, they're, they're viewing it as not a big deal. Right. Um, but what we're talking about is all of these are either natural or, or synthetic derivatives of the most addictive substance on the planet. And all of them in their initial heyday were touted as being not addictive and a safe substitute for the previous medication <laughs> that was <laughs> that was supposed to be non-addictive the diacetylmorphine however this heroin substance has been proven over and over again to be very unique in that it is very quickly metabolized to monoacetylmorphine. One of these um, acetyl groups is removed very quickly, and the high that someone gets with the monoacetylmorphine is incredibly powerful, very reinforcing, and creates a very rapid addiction. Uh, the addiction to heroin, profound powerful and rapid and it is because of this very unique substance that none of the other opioids have and monoacetylmorphine in fact when we're doing drug testing trying to confirm that someone is actually using heroin that is exactly the substance that we're looking for is the 6am or the 6 monoacetylmorphine 
a substance that really goes through the body awfully quickly, and so it's not one that you typically will find immediately in a drug test. Um, but when you know it's there, you have no doubt that it's anything other than the use of heroin. So heroin was produced and um, was not very long before the extreme addiction to heroin um, and the dangers of heroin became well established. And in uh, by 1913, we knew it was a big deal. In 1914, Congress of the United States uh, passed the Har- uh, Harrison Narcotics Tax Act. And the goal of this was to ta- put a tax on these um, patent medications and uh, thereby try and control and um, minimize, if not eliminate, the use. Um, In 1924, they took a further step and they actually banned crude opium and they banned heroin. They placed it on what is known as um, a Schedule I drug, which means there's no medical purpose, although we do know there has been a medical purpose, but there's no safe medical purpose, and it is not um, illegal to have this substance in any form in the United States. So we go back. And because we know that the addictive potential of that medication is so great, close to one for one, that it is put immediately onto the Schedule One. So we um, stay at the University of Frankfurt in Germany, and in 1916... Um, they were able to synthesize oxycodone from theobane. Theobane is a very small uh, percentage of the substances that are found in the opium poppy, and it was really felt to be not anything, any big deal. But it's from this substance that we then see Purdue Pharma uh, taking this substance that is uh, ready to go off patent and creating the long-acting form of oxycodone, oxycontin, which is, of course, the highly, highly addictive, very valuable and sought-after prescription medication that has created for uh, many people here in the United States um, a big trouble in terms of easy access to prescription drugs, felt to be safe, touted and advertised, and doctors were trained that this is a safe medication because it's long-acting, People with addiction aren't going to want it, and primary care doctors in particular were the ones that were marketed to with the goal of here's a safe, potent, long-acting, non-addictive, or minimally addictive alternative to morphine, codeine, and other medications, and we have the disaster that we know of today as the prescription drug epidemic. What they um, quickly discovered is that even though it's, it's designed to be a long-lasting, slow, slowly absorbed, that when addicts um, um, used it in the way that addicts do, not as prescribed, but by opening it up and, and um, smoking it or snorting it or using it in some other fashion, they could get to that high they wanted really quickly. Um, and, and they came out with a, a form that they touted as being un, untamperable, that if you tried to tamper it, it would, it would release this gel, I believe, and, mm-hmm. and ruin the product. But about the same time, they also came out with another form, Roxycontin, that the, the opiate brain just 
absolutely loved and and they transitioned right on over to that without blinking an eye and we continue to see that over and over again unfortunately medications are offered medications are touted as being safe as being non-addictive as being um potent and powerful and they are each time we have a new iteration of these substances we find them to be more and more potent um, all the way up to fentanyl and sufentyl which is a hundred times more potent than uh, morphine which is the standard to which we compare the potency of drugs we see each time they alter this chemical and change the um, structure slightly to make a new uh, medication, we find it is more potent, more addictive, more desirable than ever before. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about accidental overdose is not the only problem we have with opioid painkillers. Please stay tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and with me today is David Donaldson, the CEO of the Atlanta Healing Center. 
we're talking about the history of opioids in the United States. And we realize that while we're having a huge problem right now, we've had a huge problem over and over again with different substances throughout um, the history of this country, um, starting with opium, moving through morphine, on into heroin, then to oxycodone, now into fentanyl, other substances, they just keep coming. And our patients, unfortunately, just keep um, getting exposed and then becoming addicted. But, and and we also keep, we're also moving towards talking about how they keep changing and altering the delivery system in a, in a hopes that that's going to be a, mm-hmm. a safe way to use it that's not going to cause addiction um, or not going to extend addiction. Um, and so it really does speak to why there's there's a mistrust mm-hmm. um, that 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 scientists and 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 the professionals are trying to find a way to be able to relieve pain. They have a, a pure motivation for helping people um, in a way that's not addictive. But what they keep producing is situations that c- increase addiction. I'm thinking about when they came out with. Um, um, some other substances that were touted as being completely safe for for use that right. they were not going to be addictive they use them with animals all the time um, the the name is blank in my brain right now so I can't <laughs> like, say it like, like the uh, alprazolam the Xanax well no I was thinking of uh, tramadol tramadol and when it came out the first year it was out it was being touted as a safe pain medication because it doesn't have addictive potential and immediately we're seeing people on it relapsing and going back to their drug of choice. And so we were immediately were saying to people, it might not be addictive, but it will cause relapses, and therefore it's dangerous for you. Within a year, it, they came out with a warning, not addictive, except for people who have narcotics addiction. <laughs> right. And now we know it is highly addictive, and in fact, it became um, the drug of most recent use by healthcare professionals because it was a separate urine drug test. And so if they were being um, drug tested, they could continue to use that medication and um, the other, um, and have a quote, um, negative urine drug screen because it wasn't actually being tested for and we wouldn't know that they were using it until someone had a seizure in the emergency room or the operating room and I don't mean the patient and that's a symptom that people just don't expect when you're talking about opiates and you're talking about pain medications you don't expect that seizure is going to be an option or a, a consequence but it is we have um, the same issue now with dextromethorphan um, this is a derivative um, meant to be an alternative for codeine or morphine or hydrocodone as a cough medication. So they tweak the molecule, tweak the molecule, and now we have an over-the-counter molecule that um, dextromethorphan that provides reasonably good cough suppressant activity. Many of our patients, unfortunately, love this high that they get. It's different than the opiate high because they get a a feeling like an amphetamine. They can have an experience like a hallucinogen where they're having hallucinations and delusions and illusions. And the withdrawal is just like coming off uh, morphine or another opiate. So every time they tweak this molecule, we begin to see this is safe, this is fine, please use it, great alternative, and 
somebody somewhere is going to figure out how to use it in an addictive way. And it's going to become become much, much more intense. What we actually find is that with these new methods, people are having a harder time um, actually getting off of it and staying off of it. Um, and, and part of um, what they're beginning to look at is that that even short-term exposure to opiates, as you were talking about, is showing to cause uh, increase in pain or chronic chronic um, experiences with pain. Right. Um, very interesting um, um, research that's coming out of the University of Colorado looking at this phenomenon that even using um, uh, a short-acting, short five, six, seven days of a relatively low-intensity pain reliever that is an opioid like hydrocodone for example can actually cause um, increased effects and increased experience of pain therefore the patient feels more pain and so they're going to be more likely to continue using it but and it's sounding like symptoms of of um, hyperallergenic Allergesia, mm-hmm. um, the intense experience of pain that we've often talked about in terms of, of someone who's been on long-term exposure to pain and we've thought, well, the pain causes this rebound-type pain or it causes the body to have um, a mixed message about what the pain is. But what this most recent study is showing is that it can cause that experience at a very low um, exposure rate. Yes, um, there are, and this happens in the spinal cord. Um, when a person is in pain, the messages about pain are transmitted from the nerves in our body up through our spinal cord and into our brain, into the pain center of the brain, where we actually perceive the pain. When you have this pain um, warning signals going to your brain, it lights up the spinal cord. The spinal cord is highly um, al- on high alert because there is pain, there is danger, we need to do something. You add these pain medications, even for a short period of time, and I'm not talking about um, over-the-counter non-steroidals like, um, like ibuprofen. I'm talking about hydrocodone or oxycodone, the opioid um, synthetics or semi-synthetics or even the natural ones, um, it causes these areas, um, it dampens the pain message, so the person experiences less pain, but it agitates this part of the spinal cord to say, wait a second, we're saying there's pain, we're going to turn up the volume of the pain message. And so you add pain medicine to it, and the volume gets turned up, so the person is actually experiencing more pain. And um, we used to think, as you said, this was only in chronic pain, but this very interesting study that was just released from the um, University of Colorado um, really highlights that four or five days, a minimal amount of a low-level opioid can create this hyperalgesia. And as the person's experiencing more pain, their desire for more pain medication obviously increases and may now turn someone from a acute pain patient into a more chronic pain patient. And that's a real scary thought. You know, an area for study, I think, with this would, would be looking at people who have a previous history of addiction 
but have something happens where they have to be exposed to pain. People who've had long-term recovery or people who've had um, um, a long-term use of, of marijuana or something that they hadn't really crossed into the out-of-control behaviors, but then something happens and they have this exposure, do they then find they, – they frequently will talk about being – um, suddenly out of control and suddenly there's getting all of their pawning televisions and pawning things and, and sacrificing everything for this drug that, that mm-hmm. they've never had that experience before. Because um, we, we regularly will see the person who has that addiction reaction first exposure to opiates where it lights up their brain and they're so excited about it. But this isn't those people. Right. These people have kind of, we've always perceived, just drifted into addiction through medical consequence rather than what we're seeing here, that this is actually tweaking their brain. Right. Or their their spinal cord. Mm -hmm. And sending increased volume of pain messages to the brain. Um, A very scary phenomenon when you figure that though North America is less than 10% of the world's population, we use 90% of the world's opioid pain relievers. In other countries, people don't get outpatient pain medication. It is very unusual for someone outside of a hospital where they're being treated for a a surgery or um, an accident or an illness for someone to be put on pain medicine. It's just not part of the culture around the world. Here, there is an expectation in North America, and I'm meaning the United States and Canada, an expectation, if I'm in pain, there must be a pill, there must be something to help me manage the pain, and now we're beginning to realize those pills may be actually making the pain worse. A scary thought. That, that is a amazing thought because part of a, a big part of the addiction treatment process is helping people learn that they've got to manage pain without chemicals They're using using yoga using alternative methods to address pain um, um, because what we've known is that they will never be able to use pain medication safely without the risk of abuse and and um, even though pain's going to happen they've got to find ways to manage it scary stuff. The other thing that um, a study was just released um, looking at the increased risk of death from using these pain medications other than accidental overdose. We've been focusing on the deaths related to opioids through accidental overdose and overdose death. This study was actually in the AJC not recently, so some of our listeners may have read it. Right. Um, that was really highlighting how people um, are dying at a much higher rate from cardiac issues if they've had to be on opiate, opioid treatment. Um, one study showed that, that it was as high as 65%. Um, no, no. that 64%. 64% of people would... would we're dying within six months right. of being placed on opioid treatment. 
compared to the general population. Right. And there was um, another study that was also um, looked at in Tennessee where 4,500 patients um, were broken down into two groups. One group, they had the same kinds of problems, the same back aches or arthritis. One half of the group were given prescription long-acting opioids, these um, opioid pain relievers. The others received non-opioid uh, drug um, um, therapy, medication therapy using gabapentin or at, um, antidepressants. Among the opioid users over this um, little over 10-year period of time, 185 of them died compared to 87 of those who were given non-opioid um, medications for the same conditions, the same problems. Wow. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the latest um, medication on the market to try and treat opioid addiction. Please stay tuned. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. This is Daryl Pullis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com 
the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and with me is David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. We have been um, talking today about the history of opioids in the United States and the struggle that we've had in terms of the... Um, constant ingenuity <laughs> among our patients in finding ways to um, use and misuse medications and um, the unfortunate real reality that the disease of addiction is alive and well, that it is a genetically inherited disease, and that it is a brain disease, and that in spite of our best efforts um, to finding solutions for treating pain problems, we continue to bump up against um, the most effective pain relievers are unfortunately also most likely to be medications that cause um, uh, the patient to become at least physiologically dependent, meaning they'll have a withdrawal syndrome if they stop taking it, and um, that they may have to increase their dose over time. Uh, that tolerance, those are two natural phenomenon that occur with patients taking medications for chronic pain. Because of the availability and the number of people in North America being exposed to prescription drugs for chronic pain, we are finding more and more young people being exposed to these medications, not just because they have had a sports injury or their teeth uh, pulled, but because they see it as a safe recreational way to get high. And we now find ourselves with a nation of young people addicted to opioids well before our expected time for them, unfortunately. Well, and and they're using them to get high, but they're also using them to um, function. Yes. Um, th- being able to get out and meet the demands of, of our current society in terms of all of the school pressures and work pressures, and and it is becoming a, just a part of their um, their enhancements to be able to function in, mm-hmm. in today's life. So, yes, many times um, they are taking prescription medication, not because they have a diagnosis or a physical problem, but to enhance their performance, to um, improve their uh, grade on a test, to be able to stay up longer, to study for that test, to continue to play a sport in spite of an injury and pain. We see many ways in which young people are expected to perform at a high level and therefore they find the chemical means to do so and and given the given the message that this performance is very very important more important than they are as a person so taking Adderall and if Adderall is working for the kid beside you and he's getting straight A's then you need to be taking it too because y'all are in competition so they're getting a message very regularly and very early that they need chemical solutions to solve the problems, mm-hmm. um, um, and it's it's opening up all of these doors for for um, people becoming addicts and needing needing treatment resources that are going to also work in in our modern day life. And out of that, we're seeing young people becoming addicted. Um, 
and uh, expressing the disease of addiction in their life. They're no longer getting high. They're using these um, medications. They're using these substances just to feel normal or to keep from being sick. Um, this is separate. This is a specific genetically inherited brain disease that we treat. Because they've been exposed to potent opioids, we're seeing also a change in what happens next. They can't continue to afford these medications. They can't buy them off the street. We've done a pretty good job, not a great job, but a pretty good job of training doctors about proper prescribing um, on this program, we talk often about proper um, storage and disposal to make sure that medications aren't available to kids to use recreationally. So as we've decreased the supply, an unintended consequence is unfortunately now people are going to heroin. We saw heroin being given to babies back in the um, late 1800s, early 1900s for teething pain and for coughs. Then it was pulled off, and we saw in the 60s, 70s, and 80s heroin being an end stage of an opioid addiction. People who used heroin who used a needle, were often um, well into their disease of addiction. Now we're seeing young people using heroin. And we're seeing young people being addicted to this, uh, in my opinion, the most potent, most powerfully rewarding of all of the opioids um, because of that particular little molecule that's very short-lived but very highly rewarding, and that's the 6-monoacetylmorphine. So now we have these young people, 16, 17, 18, 20. Addicted to the most powerful drug out there. Um, and, and real often they are still what we would normally look at and mm-hmm. think about as the experimental stage where they're still kind of trying and using it to socialize and using it to connect. And they're on a drug that is putting them at risk for, for overdose and dying with that first exposure. So they're full-fledged into their addiction when they're starting. Right. Their um, their sense of powerlessness, their willingness to commit to total abstinence, their their struggle with all of that, um, when they barely had time to, to experience the addiction, is, is really quite the challenge. And, and helping them realize, okay, your life has forever changed. The direction of your life has changed, and we need to figure out a way to help you survive so that you can find your way back mm-hmm. to a new path. Um, has led to medications like like Vivitrol, like um, naloxone for saving lives, and and buprenorphine, buprenorphine for mm-hmm. for helping to um, stop their ability to get high and help stop their abil- ability to abuse drugs, and also to um, stop the cravings so mm-hmm. they have the ability to regain their thoughts and get their um, life back in back in direction. Unfortunately, what we're finding because of heroin and the powerful nature of it, as, you, as you're saying, David, we're finding that an abstinence-based model does not work for many of our patients. And so the use of buprenorphine has become a way in which we can stabilize folks Get them off the streets, get them off heroin, get them back into college, into their lives, into work, into their community, 
and provide them with um, a safe alternative as they're learning about recovery skills and developing a support network. This is heroin for me personally as a prescriber and an addiction um, psychiatrist has changed my perspective. I'm very much supportive of abstinence-based recovery. However, um, too many people are dying, and this is a serious problem. So adding the buprenorphine has been life-saving and life-changing for many of our patients. Well, and I, I know the thing in, about our practice that's made us favor buprenorphine is that it's dosed. We're able to dose it in such a way that they are making a daily commitment to the recovery. They're making a daily commitment to um, doing what needs to do to change their to change their lives. And and so for us, it brings up some concerns with this new um, this new form of right. the opioid. Um, um, the thoughts I must imagine are just all over the place with this new format because it really does take away that one little piece of the carrot that we have been used to using. Right. And that is that the buprenorphine, we prescribe it in small amounts. We count the number of films the patient has. We do frequent drug testing. The patient is involved in groups, individual neurofeedback, all kinds of ways in which we're supporting them and their family in their recovery. The um, implantable buprenorphine is for medium to low dose buprenorphine patients that are stable. It's the size of four matchsticks that's implanted under the skin in the upper arm and it releases a small amount of the medication, a consistent dose over time. So in theory, that sounds like a great idea, and it sounds like the solution to patients who lose their medicine or forget to take their medicine. Though I have to tell you, most of our patients on buprenorphine are not missing their doses or losing their medicine. They understand how serious it is and that we are um, going to hold them accountable for that. So the idea that you can implant this and that it will last for six months, um, I think may be useful for some patients. I think it's too soon to tell whether this is going to be something we would integrate into our practice. And in talking with some of my colleagues in Canada, um, there have been some problems with it in terms of compliance and in terms of actual danger to the patient when someone mugs them and steals their buprenorphine from under their skin. So, um, too soon to tell. Um, I think many doctors are getting excited, are getting trained in this, and um, many patients have found this in the studies to be very helpful. So, we will take a wait and see picture it's not necessarily a bad thing may not be a good thing we're going to wait and see so thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week on detailing addiction america's web radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace we have shows about health business current events entertainment home care and everything in between We appreciate your continued support of America's web radio.